It's been a while since my last podcast. I think there's a few reasons for that, but partly because I started reading a long book about helium and I just couldn't put it down. Today I'm going to continue with the theme of trying to get rid of articles in my cabinets and I'm going to avoid studies today. I'm going to try and get rid of some review articles I thought were really well done over the past couple years that have been piling up for me and some great points that I took away from them. The first article I do want to discuss is called Diuretic Treatment in Heart Failure. So this came out of the New England Journal on November 16, 2017 by Dr. David Ellison and Dr. Michael Felker. And I love how they start off with just honesty, which is basically that there are not a lot of large, well-controlled clinical trials to guide the use of diuretics in heart failure. But then they go on to give some terrific points of things we don't know or suspect that we do know. One of the first pearls I got out of it was they were talking about loop diuretics and intravenous furosemide or Lasix. And when you have a patient come to the hospital and let's say they're on 40 or 80 milligrams of Lasix a day and you decide you're going to give them an IV dose of furosemide, how potent is that dose compared to their oral dose if you're going to give it through the IV? And what they say is it's approximately twice as potent on a per milligram basis as an oral dose. So I guess if you're giving 40 milligrams of Lasix IV, it's going to be about twice as potent as if they were just taking it orally at home. And of course, much of the article talks about what you should do if someone comes into the hospital with fluid retention, with significant edema, whether that be peripherally or pulmonary edema or both often is the case. And there's a lot of reasons why you get diuretic resistance. One is they're just not taking the dose. Now, we all know that. Patients dislike taking diuretics. If you give a diuretic for a first time to a patient in a hospital, it works amazing. And then you tell the patient after they've diuresed like four or five liters that they should take this thing at home every day. And they give you this look. Um, I don't know how to describe the look on an audio podcast, but let's imagine you're out on a date with a nurse and you say, I'm the guy that invented the call light. That look that that nurse will give that guy that's kind of what the same look is that patients give me when I tell them they should be taking a diuretic once or sometimes even twice a day at home. And then there's tons of other reasons why diuretics stop working as well. One, if you're getting a lot of edema, you can get slow absorption of the diuretic because of gut edema. If the kidneys are starting to get worse and worse, then the diuretic's not going to work as well. They don't tend to work as well when there's hypotension and low renal blood flow. And then I don't know if they use this term in this specific article, but tachyphylaxis, that's a term that my residents, if they rotate enough months with me, get to know pretty well. And basically tachyphylaxis with any drug is when successive doses start to have diminishing response. And that's certainly the effect with loop diuretics. And so 
as the months go by, as the years go by, a drug is just less effective, tachyphylaxis. Okay, so getting back now to that patient who we decide to give intravenous furosemide to, I said it's about a 2 to 1 potency with the intravenous dose versus the oral dose. And that's not referenced, so I don't know where that comes from, but assuming that it is true or close to true, then there's always this other point which you hear all the time in hospitals on rounds or from your colleagues that bumetanide and torsamide, which are two other loop diuretics, have a more consistent oral absorption and bioavailability, making the oral and intravenous doses similar. So we often switch patients from oral Lasix to Bumex or torsamide or whatever because we feel that Lasix no longer works for them. And sometimes that's successful, and I gotta say, sometimes that's not successful. And as far as saying that they have equivalent oral and intravenous doses, although I've heard that many, many times, that also is not referenced in this article to give you a definitive source of where that comes from. Either way, you've probably heard most of that stuff before. So let's get to some practical issues. One, they do review the Diuretic Optimization Strategies Evaluation Trial. That's known as the DOSE trial. And I'll save you a lot of what they talk about by just saying that the data really does not support the use of continuous infusions of diuretics. So your Lasix drip as compared to giving boluses. So if you're going to give boluses, how much should you give? And again, they don't have a reference on this, and I don't think it's their fault, but it is very similar to what I do, so I feel good about what they're saying, which is when you initially treat with Lasix, at least in the hospital, they usually give 2.5 times the previous oral dose administered as twice daily boluses as an initial strategy. Is that always going to work? Sometimes it may be a little too much. Sometimes it may be too little. I wish I could give you very firm recommendations on diuretic dosing, but that's what this article is pointing out, that we really can't. And so what I tend to do, it really depends, because I think there is a feel to some of this for how long the patient's been on diuretics, how edematous they are, are they breathing okay in front of you? You know, you take all that stuff into consideration. But let's say they take 40 milligrams of Lasix once or twice a day. I usually then end up giving them 80 milligrams IV BID to 120 milligrams IV BID. And when I start getting into those higher dosages, my residents always question me, as do some of my colleagues. And I don't know what to say. I mean, a lot of times... With Lasix, what you notice is they come in with acute renal failure. Their creatinine may be 2.6, 2.8, and you start giving them diuretics, and the next day it's 2.2, and the day after that it's 1.8. But certainly, could you go in the wrong direction and start causing significant acute renal failure, pre-renal failure, hypotension, of course, and, and that happens to me, and the kidneys and the cardiovascular system don't always play fair. Maybe that's why some people eat kidneys. I don't eat kidneys, but some people do, and if you do eat kidneys, you should boil the piss out of them. 
But here's the thing. So with diuretics, there's a lot of opinion, obviously, on how to use them, some based on a lot of experience, some based just on strong opinion that we keep doing the same thing wrong. One thing I think we all can agree on is that when you have diuretic-resistant patients, they are at high risk for worsening illness and death. And that actually is referenced in this article. But what I tell my colleagues and the way I feel about somebody that comes in with severe pulmonary edema, they can't breathe, they are, you know, 15 pound, 25 pound fluid overloaded is, yes, sometimes on occasion, I will throw that person into worsening acute renal failure by diuresis, but what's the alternative? Because if someone is that fluid overloaded to the point where they're really not walking well, their skin is breaking down in their legs, they can't breathe at all, and we're going to say, like, well, we don't want to worsen your kidneys. Well, how else are you going to get the fluid off? Well, one way you could get the fluid off is dialysis. So in my mind, if I'm going to get the kidneys into bad shape and it's my fault, that really was the alternative anyways, meaning that dialysis is one option in this terrible cardiorenal syndrome. Now, another option is to use a palliative care approach, in which case you also are going to try and get fluid off, get the person breathing better, more comfortable, and using high-dose diuretics. And that conversation is pretty common in most hospitals where you're just failing to decongest a patient with diuretics, and basically you have this discussion, dialysis, damned if you do, dead if you don't. But either way, if you're going aggressive or palliative, why not try diuretics? Now, this is where this article gets kind of cool, is in talking about why it's so hard to predict what is going to happen with those diuretics. Because some of the things that loop diuretics do counteract each other. So it's often very hard to predict, for instance, if someone is going to have higher or lower blood pressure after diuresis. And that's because there are physiologic reasons for that. So for example, you know, we know diuretics do activate the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, and therefore they dilate blood vessels directly. But on the other hand, there are some things they can do to increase arterial blood pressure. Don't really have to know all the reasons why, just that it can go either way. Because the body's constantly trying to adapt to just what happened to it. So if you're giving a loop diuretic, obviously you're trying to excrete all the sodium chloride, and that happens while the diuretic's working for several hours. But then it's followed by this period called post-diuretic sodium retention, where from your diet of what you're taking in with sodium chloride, you know, salt, you're trying to now keep that sodium chloride in you, retention, keep it. And therefore, after diuresis, you can bounce around a little bit by trying to retain salt. And then there's this important term called the breaking phenomenon. Now, you may have seen this in your patients and not even really understood or noticed that it had a name in the past, but sometimes a patient comes in a hospital, you give them maybe a Lasix, they get 
a bunch of fluid out, then you give another adiolasics, and they get some fluid out, and it keeps decreasing as the days go on. Well, that's called the breaking phenomenon. And so what happens is as the extracellular fluid volume declines, this adaption or breaking phenomenon occurs. And it does a few things in addition to just not being as effective. Otherwise, the body would have this relentless contraction of extracellular fluid volume. And so the body's adapting, saying, uh-uh, you can't keep doing that with each dose of this stuff. But also, it can actually activate the sympathetic nervous system. Again, making these drugs a bit hard to always predict. And no matter what happens, you're going to build some resistance, often in the short term, but definitely in the long term. By the way, my physicist friends tell me that resistance is not futile. Resistance is voltage divided by current, but that's way above my level of what I would know. Anyway, hopefully you picked up some good pearls just on me talking about it. The article has a lot more pearls and you know gets into the things like what happens if you use something like metallazone with a loop diuretic. And then they do make a point that I think is worth bringing up at the very end that I guess furosemide is being reformulated soon to be given subcutaneously. So that will be interesting um, because a lot of people, you know, they go to the primary care office and they're just told to double their diuretic and it doesn't work and they end up in the hospital. So what if you could go to primary care, urgent care and get started on a dose of subcutaneous furosemide? That will be an interesting thing to see how that plays out. And while I have no source to back up what I'm about to say, there actually may be a new wine coming out that counteracts diuretics, and it's called Pinot More. I heard that through the grapevine, so. Moving right along. So this next article, it came out of the Journal of Hospital Medicine, which is a publication of the Society of Hospital Medicine, and the review article was titled, Inpatient Management of Diabetic Foot Infections, a Review of the Guidelines for Hospitalists. It looks like the authors of this were several, and they come out of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. And there was one thing that caught my eye, because it's something I've done for, well, since the late 1990s now, and I really had no evidence behind it. So what happens? You get a patient that comes in, and let's say they have an infected toe or a piece of foot, and you remove it. So the orthopedic surgeon, or usually in our hospital, a podiatrist will come on in and remove it, and they got rid of the infection. How long do you give antibiotics? So my interns will often ask me this, and I'll be like, um, like, one to two days more, and then just stop. And I say that based on absolutely nothing other than probably some of my colleagues or people I learned from told me to do that. Or maybe I just came up with that out of my head, and that's possible. Either way, it looks like that's not a terrible answer. So it caught my eye when they started discussing this topic. We are at a moment in history where having a strong opinion is as valued as an expert opinion as any. But obviously, we do have some expertise since we deal with these issues all the time. And this kind of reminds me 
of the doctor who originally taught me infectious disease medicine, who has his own podcast. I think it was the first medical podcast I ever started listening to, which was the PUSCast, which was Dr. Mark Chrislip. So where I went to residency, he was the one who took me on for four or eight weeks, however long I did infectious disease. And he was great. Um, He's as smart as he sounds on the podcast. And I learned a lot from him, but he would get frustrated that for a lot of infectious disease issues, particularly at that time, things have gotten a little bit better. But at that time, you know, there's tons and tons of cardiovascular studies, huge placebo-controlled randomized trials, and infectious disease just tends not to have that. So when I would question him on how long you give a course of antibiotics, and I don't think I asked him in this specific issue, maybe I did, but he would just sometimes turn to me and say, Parat, sometimes it's more important to be certain than correct. And he was being facetious and funny, but actually sometimes that is how it works. I hate to say it, but that's when we don't have evidence one way or the other, we just have to give an opinion. And when you look at the latest guidelines, which is still only 2012, so right now I'm talking 2018, but when you look at those 2012 guidelines for the diagnosis and treatment of diabetic foot infections that comes from the Infectious Disease Society of America, it says when a radical resection leaves no remaining infective tissue, we suggest prescribing antibiotic therapy for only a short duration, which they say is two to five days. So I guess my one to two days that I'm telling my residents is a little bit lower in the one day category, but two days should be good enough based on what they're saying. Although they're the first to admit that this is a weak recommendation with low quality evidence. And then they go on to say, if there is persistent infection or necrotic bone, then they suggest prolonged therapy, which they just define as four weeks or more with antibiotic therapy, again, based on basically nothing. But of course, does make sense. And usually in that situation, we are having an infectious disease physician decide exactly how long to continue with the antibiotics, which I would want for at least four weeks, because ultimately, just like our president, we want to tweet others the way we want to be tweeted, right? Actually, I don't think he wants to be tweeted at back the same way he tweets to others. But the bigger issue is that after taking off a toe or part of the foot, and you don't think that there's any more infection there, I think the standard of care at the moment is just to say, okay, give another two to five days of antibiotics. Although I have seen people that have given none after surgery because they're like, hey, the infection's gone and patients did okay. But if I'm going to recommend anything, I guess I'll go with my old thoughts that kind of go with the guidelines, so maybe about two days or so. Okay, and lastly, I want to discuss a few points from an article. This one goes back to December 27, 2016, and this was in JAMA, so the Journal of American Medical Association, and it was titled New Onset Seizure in Adults and Adolescents, a review. And this came out of the neurology department from Baylor College of Medicine and I think Northwestern University. So great article written by these two authors that I can't pronounce their last name, so my apologies to them. 
But every time I deal with seizures, I get a bit nervous just because I find it a difficult and ever-evolving topic in such a high-stakes topic and not an uncommon thing to see, unfortunately. There's, they're tragic. And so if you have a seizure, the chance of that happening in a lifetime to any one of us, just an unprovoked seizure, is about 10%. And then about 2 to 3% of us have a chance of developing what's known as epilepsy, which is characterized by an enduring predisposition to generate epileptic seizures. So I think most of you are like me. When you see a new onset seizure for the first time, you go ahead and do brain imaging. Often if they came through the ER, they got a CT to begin with, but Almost all of us go on to get an MRI, and that's what these authors say to do. But while that's important to get an MRI so we don't miss something that's very important to see in the brain, most of the time you're not going to see anything. But they're saying that it can be something where you see an important finding about 30% of the time. And one of the things that they pointed out which I didn't totally realize, and I do need to go talk with our radiologist to see if the hospitalists in general, if we're ordering this correctly at my institution, but they say rather than just a brain MRI, you should be getting an epilepsy protocol specific brain MRI that differs from a typical MRI of the brain because it has thinner slices and attenuated inversion recovery sequences and all these things that I don't always totally understand. And I figure oftentimes when we put in, and it's so important to put in the diagnosis of why you're getting any imaging test, I can't overemphasize that to people to put in detail. I think the radiology department in general changes the ordering of the studies that we have ordered appropriately. So I hope that's happening if we do have this MRI-specific protocol for epilepsy, but obviously I can't rely on that, so I'll check it out. But that's interesting because they say that with this epilepsy protocol-specific MRI, it increases the detection of subtle lesions, particularly focal cortical dysplasia and hippocampal sclerosis. And they specifically say that the presence of those often subtle abnormalities signifies a risk for seizure recurrence of greater than 60% and establishes a diagnosis of epilepsy. And that's really what not only the doctor wants to know, it's always what the patient and their family appropriately want to know. And so when you have a first new onset seizure, what they say is, there's approximately a 35% chance, about a third of patients will go on to have a recurrent seizure, another seizure within five years. And then they say if you have a second seizure, the chance of another recurrence increases to 75% in the following five years. Okay, and so after you deal with the brain imaging, you know, then the question comes up about EEG, so electroencephalography. God, I can't say it. Encephalography. All right. If you have continuous EEG monitoring, awesome for you. We have one. I think we're about to expand to two beds. It's an act of God to get somebody 
on continuous EEG. We only offer it in the ICU. There's usually somebody on it, somebody waiting for it, and not so easy to get a lot of patients in my institution on continuous EEG. And I know a lot of you practice at hospitals where it doesn't exist, and some of you practice at hospitals where you have these huge neurology departments and no problem put 12 people on continuous EEG. It's like having them just on telemetry. Okay, so if you don't have easy access to continuous EEG, then almost everybody on every order set and even before checks box medicine existed was ordering the standard 30-minute EEGs after a seizure because that's what we do. And what fascinated me in this review article is how different my experience with getting that EEG is as far as being helpful compared to what they're saying is the helpfulness of it. So in my experience, and I, I wouldn't go with me, I'm probably wrong, but since I have been a physician, definitely since I got out of residency, so you know, more than 15 years now, when I have had an EEG in a patient who had a seizure who is now awake, alert, eating, doing fine, and we just get an EEG. So I'm not talking about the person that's still a little bit postictal or a little bit altered or slurred speech or, or whatever's going on. I'm talking about the awake alert patient, which is most patients after their first onset seizure, unless they're in this prolonged postictal state, Todd's paralysis, you know, those kind of things that we, we do see with, with frequency. But if they're awake and alert, I have yet once in my entire career to have a single EEG be helpful to me. It may have some nonspecific slowing or be totally normal, but I just haven't picked up a seizure yet in my career in someone who is completely back to their baseline. Now I have picked up seizures in people that aren't back to their baseline. And even um, within this past year, it was pretty amazing. This neurologist who I wish was still with us, she, told me, boy, this looks like a stroke. And I never saw anybody call a stroke by EEG findings, but she was right. We got an MRI and the diffusion lit up and it was an acute stroke and not a seizure that was causing the symptoms or a postictal state. Or there may have been a seizure associated with the stroke, who knows? But clearly the stroke was the bigger deal in that situation. I'm going off on a tangent. What I'm trying to say is it just has not been helpful to me, but it apparently is still the way to go. So I have these patients sitting around all day waiting for what I thought was checkbox medicine or just now you got to get an EG and they're like, well, I ate breakfast and lunch and I feel fine. And we're like, yeah, well, wait for your EG. And then I usually discharge them without having the result. And I say, I'll call them if there was an abnormality and there isn't. But in this review article, they say, and I'm going to quote this, in patients with new onset seizures, 29% of patients will have epileptiform abnormalities on their first EEG, and they do give a reference for that. So I'm not sure what that percentage is in people that are awake, alert, talking, and say they're feeling back to their baseline versus how many of those abnormalities are being picked up on people that are still in a post-ictal or otherwise altered neurologic state. But I, I found that way above my own experience, but I probably am an outlier on that. One point that I definitely was missing at this article reminded me of, because I just haven't been talking to my patients about it after 
they've had a first onset seizure because you're spending so much time talking about the imaging and whether they should be on anti-epileptics, probably not the first time around unless there's a high risk for another. And, you know, this article gets into all that. But one of the things I don't talk with them enough is about drowning risk. And so obviously there's going to be certain activities like swimming alone, unobserved, um, scuba diving, or doing activities that don't drown in but are very dangerous, like climbing. Um, But one of the things we should be telling our patients is that we should encourage them to take showers instead of baths. And I can't say I've told them to do that, but that makes a lot of sense to me. So I'm going to try and change my practice to do that. And there's so many other good pieces of advice in here, but maybe I'll leave with just one last one, which is prolactin levels, because this does come up a bunch, because I think one of most people's least favorite diagnosis, it has got to be in every hospitalist and probably neurologist, top five least favorite diagnosis is psychogenic non-epileptic seizures. You know, people that aren't really having a seizure, but appear to be having a seizure. It's a very, very difficult thing dealing with the patient, with the family, um, gives you bad online reviews, trust me, um, when you give that diagnosis to somebody and they're not having real seizures. And so you try and tease that out multiple ways. But one thing that often comes up is prolactin levels. I certainly have never felt, and certainly after reading this, do not feel that prolactin should be the deciding factor as to whether this is real seizures or not. There's so much that goes into it. And by the way, that is when continuous EEG is extremely important when you're dealing with that diagnosis. But anyway, um, if you're waiting on the EEG or to transfer into another hospital that has continuous EEG, sometimes you get a prolactin level with the thinking that it might be able to be another piece of evidence that helps tease out whether there was generalized or focal seizures with impaired consciousness from the psychogenic non-epileptic seizures, meaning if the prolactin level's high, after a seizure-like activity, you tend to think, okay, maybe this was a real seizure, and if it's real low, you get a little bit nervous, is that what you're really dealing with? But they make the point that prolactin levels measured after a seizure, and by the way, it's usually done 10 to 20 minutes after a seizure, so it's important to get the phlebotomist or draw the blood yourself or have the nurse draw it out of the line, whatever, 10 to 20 minutes after the event, but they make the point that it has to be compared with the patient's baseline prolactin level measured at least six hours prior to the suspected event. So I don't know how you do that if they're coming in with seizures because now they're not really at their baseline. But if it's been a couple days, maybe order it with their morning labs and then you'll have something to compare if it were to happen again. Now, they also make the point that there's other reasons for elevation of prolactin and and we all know that. So there's certain medications that do that. But one of the points that they make, and this is rather difficult to integrate sometimes, is that prolactin elevations can also be seen with a syncopal event. In this, the elevated prolactin does not differentiate between 
a epileptic seizure and syncope. Now, again, that's not usually these patients, meaning most psychogenic seizure patients don't fall and break their nose. And that's often one of the tip-offs is that they never hurt themselves. They're always in a safe situation when these seizures happen and they happen all the time in front of mom who's a big advocate that these have to be real and tons of other potentially reinforcing behaviors from loved ones and people that genuinely care about this person. So they're trying to do the right thing but it can be a very difficult situation. But the big point that I want to take home, for myself at least, with serum prolactin, is it's just not an effective test to distinguish between seizure and syncope. And the other big point is, if we're going to be testing prolactin, we really do need to get a baseline first. And they're saying at least six hours prior to checking it after a seizure or seizure-like event. So. Interesting stuff. Probably a lot of you knew this stuff and I just didn't, so sorry if I bored you with too much review here, but um, I hope there were some pearls that you were able to take away from all this like I did. Hey, you've been listening to Dr. Gil Parat. I will catch you on the next round.